The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about empathy, and I have been reading this wonderful book called Why It Mad- Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It by Roman Krizneric, and it is just a fabulous book. He also is the author of How Should We Live? And what I what I really enjoyed there is a uh, testimonial by another woman who I read her book called The Gift, The Gifts of Imperfection, Brene Brown, and she says empathy inspires a unique combination of teaching, storytelling, and a serious call to action. And this book has really been uh, resonating with me. So let me tell you a little bit about our wonderful guest who actually is joining us by Skype, and he's coming from Oxford, England. So we're really excited about that. It's late at night, and... You know, uh, it's wonderful. Okay, so let me tell you about Roman Krasnarek, who is a cultural thinker, a leading international expert on empathy, and the author of the new release, Empathy, Why It Matters, and How to Get It. He's a founding faculty member of the School of Life in London, and he advises organizations including Oxfam and the United Nations on using empathy in conversation to create social change. He's been named by The Observer as one of Britain's leading lifestyle philosophers, but he told me that he's originally from uh, one of my favorite places in the world, Sydney, Australia. Here's his two two previous books, How We Should Live, Great Ideas from the Past um, for Everyday Life, and How to Find, um, if I could read my writing, (laughs) what is your other book? Roman. It's called How to Find Fulfilling Work. Oh, that's why I couldn't read my writing, How to, how to Find Fulfilling Work. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Roman, and thank you for your uh, kind uh, help in that matter. It's so, a great pleasure to be on the program. I love the accent. It's always fun to have someone with a wonderful accent like yours. So, Roman, let's talk about, really, what is empathy, empathy, and why is it really good for us as people to have empathy? Well, empathy is the art of stepping into the shoes of another person and looking at the world through their eyes. So it's really about really imagining what is it like to be another person. So it's very different from what psychologists call sympathy, which is where you might just feel sorry for someone or pity. But empathy is really about trying to imagine 
things from their point of view. You walk past a homeless guy in the street and you try and imagine what's it like to sleep out on a cold mm. winter's night? What's it like to be walked past without someone looking you in the eye? And the really important thing about empathy is that it's a key to good personal relationships. If you can't really understand other people, their feelings, their needs, read their emotions, where you might think we're sort of emotionally tone deaf. It's empathy that allows us actually to get on with other people and make our relationships work. And it really connects us. I know, you know, for me, what I, my profession is being an attorney mediator. So I sit in the midst of conflict when people are in conflict and in a confidential place. I hear each of them so that, and they hear each other in front of each other. And it's my job to have that empathy, to ask open-ended questions, find out how they're feeling, what their concerns are, where they're at, so that the other party can hear that as well and understand at a deep level what's really going on. So it's it's critical for a mediator to be empathetic because if we're not empathetic, we really can't get into their, their mind and, and help them to come up with solutions that will really satisfy their interests and their needs. So... It's uh, that's why this book really resonates with me. I, I loved you have this quote by Henry David Thoreau, who is one of my favorites, and it says, "Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant?" That is so great. That's that's yeah. It's interesting that absolutely in areas like the one you're working in mediation, um, empathy is absolutely vital because it's all about getting people to understand very often very different perspectives. And that goes for, you know, whether it's trying to create mediation between Israelis and Palestinians, but also trying to create mediation in mediation situations in your own family, people trying to understand each other. I mean, if I, when I'm thinking about empathy, I really learned a lot of it, about it, actually, from my own children. You know, I've got twins, a boy and a girl, mm. and when oh. they were about one and a half years old, which was yeah. before their natural empathic capacities had kicked in, right. you get a situation where my son would be crying and his sister would try and comfort him with her favorite toy dog, mm. which was a kind of kind and sympathetic gesture, but not a lot of use to him. <laughs> now, fast forward a year, when they're about two and a half and their empathy abilities had kicked in, you, the situation would change. So when my son was crying, his sister would try and comfort him with his favorite toy cat. Mm. Right? That's the cognitive leap of empathy. And as you say, it's about understanding other people's feelings and perspectives, because that's how we can as- respond appropriately to their needs. If we can't put ourselves in their shoes, there's not much you can really do for another person. You're just kind of guessing or assuming they're maybe a bit like yourself, but we're all very different. And that's why the great Irish writer George Bernard Shaw said, do not do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. They might have different tastes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love who you quoted Gandhi, who is my idol. You know, that was really wonderful. And you talk about Nelson Mandela, who had a huge transformation of, of forgiveness and empathy in, in his life and going from violence to nonviolence and empathy and really forgiveness. They all kind of go together, don't they? That's right. I think Gandhi and, and Mandela, Nelson Mandela are both key figures. I mean, Gandhi famously said something's known as Gandhi's talisman, which is like yes. a kind of a moral principle or a rule of thumb for how to empathize, how to really do it on an imaginative level. And he said this, he said, whenever you're in doubt or when the self is too much with you, apply the following test. Recall the face of the poorest man who you may have seen 
and ask yourself if the step you contemplate is going to be of any use to him. Then yes. you'll find your doubts and yourself melting away. Yes, I love that. I, I marked that in the book as a, as a matter of fact. It's so beautiful. So, yeah, that's right. And just, you know, Gandhi was really important because he, he said, yes, empathize with the poor and the suffering, but he also said empathize with your enemies, even people whose views you find difficult, whose beliefs right. you may not agree with. You know, right. He famously, of course, was a Hindu who said, I'm a Muslim, yes. and a Hindu, and a Christian, and a Jew. Yes. And I think in all of our lives, personal lives, and our working lives, we can try and think, well, how can I really try and step into the shoes of people who, where I might even find it difficult, whether it's a, a sibling you haven't spoken to for years, or, or a manager who's making your life a nightmare. Right, exactly. And and that's, you know, that's my life's profession to try and help people to empathize with each other and understand and really kind of, if they can step into the other person's shoes then and, and their own, then they can get creative about how they can come up with solutions that will be mutually satisfying. You know, they may not be exactly what they want, but they'll, they can at least get something that's a mutual gain. And, and that's yeah. the whole idea. So it's it's so beautiful what you wrote, really. Well, it's it's interesting that I think in a lot of tense or dispute situations, people often, they just want to have their voices heard. You can't always satisfy everybody. But, you know, we know there's a, a famous statistic from uh, Marshall Rosenberg, the inventor of nonviolent communication, um, where he says that in disputes between employers and employees, if both sides agree before they sit down, literally repeat what the other side just said before they start speaking themselves, right. you reach conflict resolution 50% faster. Yes. And, you know, I think that's quite amazing. But what it tells us is that if the other person can understand that you're trying to understand them and, and recognize that, then yeah. um, it's actually a recipe for creating a, a, a kind of an empathic revolution on that personal level, which we can scale up onto a much grander scale. Yes, yes. And and that's such an important skill that, that I use in, in mediation is and what I teach in mediation, because I teach mediation and negotiation. If you're repeating back what they said and, and reframing when it's a, a negative, you know, like I, I heard you say that, you know, if someone said he's such a jerk, I can answer. I hear you say that you're really having a challenge with the you know, situation between you, <laughs> you know, what I mean? yeah. so that that I'm hearing them, but I'm reframing the words so that they're a little bit more neutral, so that we can then they can say, yeah, that's true, or they can say, no, I said he was a jerk. <laughs> right. Of course, it's quite difficult. You one needs to practice a lot to make that habitual, so it doesn't sound too mechanical. Right. And you're kind of reframing in that more neutral language, but it's, it's extraordinary how it works. Yes. And I do it with my daughter, who's now five. If she's having a tantrum, I might try and. I help her articulate her feelings and needs. I'll say, look, are you, are you upset because I'm not taking you to the park right now? Yeah. And even if I'm completely wrong about the reason, just helping articulate those thoughts for her calms her down and we can start having a conversation about it. Yeah, it's legitimizing her feelings. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. you know, so often, of course, that isn't what's going on. And I'm always very inspired by organizations which are trying to legitimize the feelings of the other person in very complex political situations. Like there's an organization in Israel and Palestine called the Parents Circle. And what they do is they bring together Israelis and Palestinians who've got something in common, which they've all had family members killed in the conflict. Right. They bring them together for story sharing. They recognize they share the same pain and the same blood. But they also do wonderful public projects. And one I, I really like was called the, the Hallowed Peace Telephone Line, 
where any Israeli could phone a free phone phone number, which was on billboards around the country. They could phone the number and they put through to a Palestinian stranger. They could talk to about anything for up to half an hour. Mm. Palestinians could similar, similarly call uh, Israelis and mm. talk to them for half an hour. And in its first five years of operation, over one million calls were made on the Hello Peace telephone line. Wow. And I think that's a sort of a, a dazzling statistic, really, about how conversation can be a force for healing. And you know what what worries me, and I wonder what you think about this. I am so worried that we have so much text messaging, and I don't know what it's like over in Britain right now, but here I can see young people sitting at a table texting back and forth at the table while they're sitting there eating dinner, texting to each other <laughs> instead I mean, it of is, conversing. It is madness, and if you look historically. <laughs> There have been great advances in conversation. You know, back in the medieval period, people sitting around having dinner, nobody spoke to each other. And then gradually, especially moving to the 20th century, people started talking a little bit more around the dinner table with their friends, being more emotionally open. And we can thank Sigmund Freud and Oprah Winfrey for that. But text messaging is taking us backwards again to the yes. medieval period, where, as you say, everybody's texting and not looking at each other, even if they're in the same room or at the same table. Yeah. Um, we also know that the more Facebook interactions you have, the more narcissistic you're likely to be. Mm. So there's a whole realm of online and digital dangers when it comes to creating an, an empathy revolution. Because you yeah. think that given that 2.7 billion people are online and there's more phones in sub-Saharan Africa than there are in Western Europe, this would be a recipe for great connection yes. across social divides. But in fact, the reality is much more complicated than that. And, you know, 10 billion text messages were sent last year in Britain, but how many of those were intimate, life-expanding conversations? I would say right. a pretty small proportion. Exactly. And the same thing with email. It's so, you know, I have in my retainer agreement that we will not negotiate by email or text. <laughs> we, right. can, we can use it to set meetings and set agendas and change schedules, etc. But it's right in there because people were trying to resolve conflict through, um, you know, email, and it just doesn't work. You you don't hear intonation of voice. I mean, the best thing is face-to-face, and then the next best would be like a telephone, you know, Skype or something, or telephone or something, you know, where you're talking together and hearing that intonation. But, you know... On one hand, you know, like I'm like saying, am I an old lady? Like I believe in, you know, we should talk, you know, and I see that when people are talking, then they can resolve conflict. Um, But somehow we're going to have to, we can't put the genie back into the bottle that the technology is there. We just have to get more creative with the technology and maybe use that FaceTime to really talk, you know, instead of using the text, get up on FaceTime or or do the the visual Skype or something, because I just don't think we're going to be able to go backward. I mean, I agree with that. I don't think we can go backwards. I think it's not so much that the technology itself is a problem, it's how we use it. Exactly. And I think we can find really good examples of empathy building online but we just need to learn from those examples one i came across recently was a wonderful project linking up brazilian teenagers who would like to learn english from a native speaker but they can't find any in brazil and it put them in basically in skype contact with 
um, elders who were retirees in care homes in Chicago mm. who were lonely and wanted someone to talk to but had the gift of being able to speak English. Yes. And um, they, the, the elders in Chicago have been teaching English to these teenagers in Brazil, and it's been wonderful. They've done something useful, but also created empathic connection across a cultural and generational divide. Yes. Um, it's really quite inspiring. It so, is. Uh, more of that I think we need. Oh, absolutely. That is just beautiful. Now, you have in your book, and I want to just mention your book again in case people are just driving by and they just, or they just downloaded and missed part of it. But I, I want to um, get back to your book, Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It. Let's talk a little bit about your six habits of highly and you know, empathetic people. Could yeah, you, I mean, that, I, the way I think about it is that if you really want to deepen your personal empathy, you have to turn it into a kind of habit, something that becomes a regular part of your life. And there are different ways of doing this that appeal to different people. So the first habit of highly empathic people, I've done you know, research on this in neuroscience and uh, evolution of biology, psychology, and many other fields. The first habit is what I think of as switching on your empathic brain. And what I mean by that is really grasping the new science of empathy as a foundation for practicing empathy in everyday life. Because for most of the last few hundred years, our culture has basically told us that human beings are individualistic, selfish creatures. But in the last 20 years, there's been a scientific revolution, an extraordinary shift in thinking about human nature itself, which tells us that actually... Yes, human beings have a selfish inner drive, but that is also intertwined with an empathic drive. We're homo empathicus. We're wired for empathy and social cooperation. 98% of us have the ability to empathize wired into our brains. And recognizing that and how that really functions is really important. And it's equally important to recognize that we can learn to get empathize. We can get better at it, like riding a bike or driving a car. And they're wonderful um, empathy skills teaching programs in schools across North America. Um, my favorite one's called The Roots of Empathy, which began in Canada. Over half a million children have done it. And the way it works is really quite cool. That uh, a, a baby is adopted by a class for the year. A real-life baby comes into a classroom of elementary school kids. The kids sit around the baby, and admittedly the baby's there with a parent and an instructor from the program. Right. And the kids sit around the baby and start talking about the baby. Why is she crying? Why is she laughing? What's she thinking or feeling? Yeah. They're trying to step into the baby's shoes. And they use this as a jumping-off point for talking about bullying in the playground or what's it like to be a kid in a wheelchair. It's all about mm. empathy expansion. And this program not only increases empathy levels, but it reduces bullying, increases cooperation, and in even increases general academic attainment. And once we recognize that we can learn empathy, I think we're ready to launch ourselves into a more empathic world. Right. And is there a particular part of the brain that that gets activated when we're empathetic? Well, there's been a lot of brain research on whether there are specific areas of the brain. Um, part of the research has been about a specific neuron type, right. which um, is part of empathy and what many of uh, your listeners will know of as mirror neurons. Right. These are neurons which light up not just when you feel pain, but when you see somebody else in pain. Right. Because when you feel fear, but when, when you see somebody else in fear. Mm -hmm. And it's partly those mirror neurons which help us feel what other people feel. That's what's known as affective empathy. It's sharing or mirroring emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, there has been a challenge to the mirror neuron theory in the last few couple of years. And the general consensus at the moment, really, is that mirror neurons are not the whole story. They're only part of the story. That, in fact, we have a 
10-section empathic circuit in our brains in different areas. And if you damage part of it, you may well lose your ability to recognize fear or other emotions on somebody else's face. Mm. But we're still at the very earliest stages, I think, of understanding exactly how the empathic brain uh, works. We know which bits light up when you're exercising uh, your empathic abilities, um, but I don't think we're not yet, ready to have re- yet ready to have kind of brain operations on us to um, turn <laughs> us into empathic superheroes. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the second habit, which is make the imaginative leap. What's that? Yes, this is... That's right. The second, the second habit of empathy is highly empathic people to make the imaginative leap, which is what I, what I mean by that is literally by it's something extraordinary about human beings, actually, Mary. It's that if you can imagine yourself in someone else's position, just that act tends to expand our moral concern for them mm. and motivates us to take action on their behalf. And there's been over half a century of psychology research on this. A famous experiment was done by the University of Kansas uh, altruism expert called Dan Batson. And what he did is got two groups of people to listen to a radio recording of a woman in deep distress because her parents mm. had been, been killed in a car accident. And the first group of subjects, he said, just listen to the objective facts in this recording. And the second group, he said, try and imagine yourself in this woman's shoes. Mm. It was about an empathic perspective taking. And, of course, the result was that those in the second group, the empathizers, who were trying to put themselves in the woman's shoes, not only had higher empathy levels, but were more likely to give time and other resources to help the woman, even controlling for differences of gender or religion or social and economic background. Mm. In other words, just imagining yourself in someone else's position can absolutely um, inspire you to act on their behalf, and it's really quite extraordinary. Yes. I remember seeing just recently um, um, a picture in the newspaper, oh, I don't know, I guess it was about uh, a month ago or something, of a little girl in um, Sierra Leone whose parents and her whole family had died you know, of Ebola, and she was just standing by a tree. No one would get near her. And the look of fear and pain on her face, oh, my gosh, I immediately felt so horrible. I donated, like, right away. I mean, no one even asked me to do that. It just was, I just felt this extreme pain of this child who is only nine years old, and no one would get near her because her whole family had died of Ebola. Well, it's a really interesting example because... You know, some people have criticized empathy and and compassion in the sense that they feel, they say that, well, look, we've been so inundated by these photographs of people suffering in different parts of the world that we've become immune to them. We've become comfortably numb, as Pink Floyd may have Mm. said. Um, And famously, uh, back in the late 70s, the the American cultural critic Susan Sontag made the same argument. She said, images anesthetize, you know, they, they numb us. But actually, as your personal experience shows, images still have a power to trigger our empathy and inspire us to act, which is why so many um, uh, organizations working in human development and humanitarian relief use the power of images to get beyond those very abstract statistics we often read in the newspaper, which in the end don't really do much for us. If we see the human face, yes. we see somebody's eyes, we recognize the humanity of the other person, and it can really do something for us. Yeah. You know what upsets me, and again, I don't know how to change that as one person, but um, you know, all of the violence on TV, people get numb or they just don't, 
you know, especially we hear about all these kids, you know, killing other kids at high school. They're seeing so much violence in the movies coming out of, you know, Hollywood or wherever. And um, I think that just numbs them worse than seeing real live pictures of people in pain. You know, because well, I they. Think, it, I think that's right. I think it numbs us, but it also it it does something even worse, which it turns violence into entertainment. Right. I mean, just think of a personal example. My partner and I were watching a film the other day, "The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo," um, which has a rape scene in it, and the rape we could tell this rape scene was about to happen, and and my my partner stopped and she just said, "You know, why is this entertainment? Yeah. You know, why are we watching this? And in fact, we turned it off." Yeah, um, but we know that there is just a ton of evidence showing how violence on TV and online and so on sparks aggression uh, uh, amongst people in everyday life. And you know, violent video games don't help. You know, some of the most right. popular video games give you points for killing prostitutes. Exactly. Um, and my children, who are currently six, are just soon going to—they're um, going to shift from reading farmyard animal stories in books to playing video games with yeah. guns and violence and um, hardly that's hardly a way to create a new empathic generation so i guess we have to work on the producers of tv and the video game people you know and really work on them because they're the ones that are doing this you know they're creating this yeah. well i think that's right and i think the problem with um online culture is that there is just such a mass of violence and terrible stuff out there but what we need to learn to do i think is curate it well and I've recently launched a web project, which um, you can find at www.empathylibrary.com. And empathylibrary.com is a highly democratic website, which is full of books and films, video shorts, documentaries, novels, children's books, all on the theme of stepping into other people's shoes. Mm. Anyone can join it and add material to it, and hundreds of thousands of people do it every month. Um, but it's one of those ways that we can start getting much better online material, which fits probably better with our, our values and our ways of looking at the world. Exactly. Well, let's go to habit three, seek experiential adventures. Yeah, I think empathy is, you can try and empathize by imagining people's position and learning the science of it. They're the first two habits. But actually trying to experience someone else's life yourself is a remarkably powerful way of empathizing. Yes. I mean, just a few months ago in the United States, tens of thousands of people took part in an anti-poverty campaign called Live Below the Line, where they spent five days living on a dollar twenty-five each day, um, which is the amount of money that one billion people on the planet have to live on. It was in solidarity with, you know, a seventh of the world's population. Um, and those experiential adventures give us a bit of a taste of somebody else's life, and it's an experience which can really shift us. Similarly, Nelson Mandela experiential empathy when he was in prison on Robben Island. Who, he was brought up as a Methodist, and he went to the religious services of every different faith group. Mm. That was an experiential adventure for him. So experiential empathy is very important. But there's a fourth habit, which is equally important, which is to master the craft of conversation. Yes. And by that I mean empathizing through talking to people and understanding their very different perspectives on life. And we all often have faced situations where we prejudge people, you know, based on what they look like and what they sound like. And these stereotypes and assumptions we have about people, whether it's people we label as Muslim fundamentalists or greedy bankers or single mums, um, those, those stereotypes and labels we use 
a real barrier to empathy because we don't treat people as individuals. And I think a great empathic description is to go out and have a conversation with a stranger at least once a week and get beyond superficial talk and really discover the life of another person through conversation. And, you know, we're all so often wrong about people. You know, I used to live around the corner from a homeless guy. I used to see him every day. And I'd walk past him and not really talk to him because I didn't think we had much in common. One day I stopped and talked to him. And um, it turned out we did have a lot in common. In fact, it turned out he had a philosophy degree from Oxford University. Mm. And this homeless man and I had developed a friendship based on our love of moral philosophy and pepperoni pizza. Um, (laughs) And it was a great thing. So that kind of curiosity about strangers... Uh, and mastering the art of empathic conversation, I think, is a real boost to our potential empathy quotient. We've got two more, and we've got about two minutes. So can we just give a little quick a quick of the fifth habit, travel in your yeah. armchair and inspire yes. a revolution? The fifth habit of empathy is to travel in your armchair. And by that, I mean watching films and reading books about empathy. And that's why I mentioned the empathy library. So you r- watch, read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird. The central line is... You never really understand another person until you step inside of his skin and walk around in it for a while. Um, So we can all do that from the comfort of our own homes. And the sixth and final habit is to inspire revolution, which is to create empathy on a mass scale. And I think we can only do that by supporting organizations like the Parent Circle, which I mentioned before, that had this hallowed peace telephone line, and by teaching empathy in schools so we can create a new generation of empathic revolutionaries. Well, Roman Krasnarek, uh, you, you're just wonderful in this book, Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It. And will you just give that website again, uh, empathylibrary.com? Is yeah, that- there's the Empathy Library, www.empathylibrary.com, and also my new project, which is the world's first empathy museum at www.empathymuseum.com. Go and check out the video there. Oh, Roman, you just stay in touch with me. This is just really wonderful. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Okay? Thanks so much for having me on the program, Mari. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. It's about trust. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.